previously on the Sports Refuge Podcast. Everybody was just stunned, shocked. I was so disgusted, man. I was just disgusted for the rest of the whole trip. From Delaware, almost live, this is the Sports Refuge Podcast. This is the weekly podcast featuring interviews with guests discussing their connection to sports. And now, here's your host, Earl Holland. Episode 62 of the Sports Refuge podcast is on the feed. This is the show where guests discuss their connection to sports. As always, I'm your host, Earl Holland. For many of you who have listened to the show on a consistent basis, you'll remember that this week's guest, Mitchell Northam, was one of the first people I interviewed. In that episode, we got an insight to how much Mitch became interested in writing sports, his love for rap music, and his journey from Salisbury, Maryland to Atlanta, Georgia, where he worked as a reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. More than two years later, I catch up with Mitch, who is now engaged and living in North Carolina, where he is a freelance writer for several sports outlets, including NCAA.com. In this episode, Northam will discuss his time at the AJC, his move to North Carolina, the return to his geek-hustling ways, and how COVID-19 has put a cramp in those plans. We'll also discuss the changing face of sports writing in this pandemic and what he has done to keep busy during the law in sports. And now, here's my interview with Mitchell Northam. Mitchell Northam was one of the first guests that I had on the show. His episode, I believe, was number four. And since then, a lot of stuff has happened since that first episode aired mid to late September of 2018. And I'm glad to have him back and to talk about what's been new. Mitch, thanks for being back on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. How have you been? Good, good. Yeah, uh, you know, everybody's dealing with this uh, COVID-19 stuff. So, you know, I haven't been working too much lately um, the past month. But, you know, staying home, staying safe. Things could definitely be worse, but they're okay. And, you know, it's funny you talk about COVID-19. I know that as a sports writer and a sports blogger and a guy who's done a number of jobs, that's had to play a huge impact on what you were doing prior to that shutdown and what you've been doing ever since. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I have a planner. I've been doing a lot of freelance work since I moved to North Carolina. And I moved here late, late October 2018, actually. And before that, I was in Atlanta working at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, came here to follow uh, my then girlfriend, now fiance, for a job. Um, and I just decided to jump feet first into the freelancing game. And, um, you know, everything was going really well. You know, had a lot of work and, uh, you know, going into March, uh, at the beginning of March, actually, I went to Nashville and went to Atlanta for some soccer work. Had been in Greensboro, North Carolina for the ACC men and women's basketball tournaments. And then uh, on March 12th is kind of when everything sort of fell apart when the NCAA tournament got canceled and when the soccer season started getting postponed. So at that point, I had work basically every day through April 10th or so. And uh, pretty much on that day or a few days after, kind of all those assignments kind of just vanished. So, yeah, it's been tough, you know, the past month or so. But, you know, I'm okay making it through it. It's been hard to see. You know, you look on Twitter and stuff and you see a lot of newspapers and other online outlets, you know, laying people off or furloughing people. And, you know, so that's been definitely hard to see. But, uh, yeah, hopefully, you know, we get through this and come out on the other side. And there's lots of jobs and opportunities for everybody, hopefully. And just even from experience, just interning at a TV station, working at a radio station, working at a newspaper, of course, it always feels like sports always gets the short end of the stick. I don't know why it feels like there are not enough resources devoted to it. And I feel like it's a frustrating thing. You know, you see your news, your weather, your featured brethren, depending on where you're working, and the sports doesn't get the love it should. 
Right. Yeah. It happens a lot. I mean, even before this stuff, but you know, now I think people just see it as, um, I think there's some newspaper companies that have sort of not just newspapers, but also just sort of digital outlets that have kind of taken this opportunity to say, maybe they were planning on cuts before anyways, but they've taken this opportunity sort of behind the guise of, you know, this pandemic to say, oh, well, we can make the cuts we need. And they can say they can do it right now because there's no sports going on, but they probably won't even be bringing those folks back when sports resumes. So yeah, it's definitely been tough. I know there's been some newspapers and some other digital outlets who've sort of taken their sports reporting resources and kind of redirected them into news. You know, a lot of sports reporters, you know, you and me included, you know, can do news. You know, most sports reporters learn how to do news before they dive straight into sports. So it's definitely something that people could do. And, you know, it's good to see some of those resources kind of getting rerouted uh, for the time being. But, yeah, it's also been hard to yeah kind of watch people, you know, lose jobs and opportunities and stuff as well. Yeah. And especially being able to do both news and sports, I think that allows you to have that versatility, that extra set of skills that normally a lot of people wouldn't have somebody who's used to doing features. It's funny when I saw a lot of jobs that were, I guess, talking about being able to do features, seeing the word feature, not as a dirty word, but as something beneficial. And it's crazy. I feel like they're all intertwined in some way. I know I'd rather do sports, maybe police on an outside level. But other than that, those are probably the two things I'd rather do. But then again, features, they aren't that bad unless you just... I feel like you have to have that versatility, especially now and already hearing about how they're letting off some of the more experienced people as opposed to the the younger ones. But I feel like that's a whole uh, disastrous thing as well. You know, less said the better about a particular company that we used to work for. Yeah, I've kind of seen it both ways where you're seeing, you know, some younger people get cut just because they're less experienced and they're cheap and they don't have sort of that uh, kind of power to fight back against something like that. Maybe they're not part of a union if the particular media company has one. Um, and then I've also seen it where they're cutting, you know, the guys who have been there 25, 30 years because those are the guys who, you know, those incremental raises over time, they're making the most, you know, at the paper and it's easy to, you know, cut that cost, you know, during this time. But uh, yeah, someone once told me, you know, you often see that, that sports reporters can do news pretty well, um, but vice versa isn't true. You know, someone who's just done news most of their life probably would have trouble kind of, you know, going to a high school football game and uh, hanging in the press box and taking their own stats and stuff. Um, that's a little bit different than, than, you know, going to the courthouse. So, uh, yeah, it's sort of funny that way. But, yeah, hopefully, like I said, when all this is over, hopefully – you know, there's more jobs and more opportunities that open up and things kind of get restocked and reshuffled, but uh, definitely tough times right now. What was the most unique, and I probably have asked you this before, but what was your most unique non-sports related story that you covered? Was there any interesting trials that you got a chance to cover or anything like that? Oh man, most unique. There's actually, I mean, two that sort of came to mind in Atlanta that I did while I was at the Atlanta Journal Constitution. One is a little bit sports related, but the story really has nothing to do with sports. So they're both sort of involving celebrities. Um, so when I was at the AJC, I covered North Fault County, which is basically the area above, you know, Atlanta. It's sort of suburban, um, very rich, kind of white collar. A lot of celebrities, you know, have houses there and stuff like that. So I think this was the summer of 2017 when that first big R. Kelly story came out in BuzzFeed. That story dropped on a weekday morning and, you know, one of my colleagues kind of read through it 
And one of the houses that he had allegedly been keeping, you know, women hostage in, according to the story, was in kind of my coverage area. And so I went out to the house and the parents of one of the girls that he had sort of been allegedly, like I said, keeping uh, hostage sort of under wraps. They held a press conference in front of this house. The house was the blinds were like papered up and stuff. Um, so that was just a very just weird thing because it involved, you know, this singer that, you know, everybody knows and stuff. And then this topic that is super just, you know, kind of crazy and really serious. So I, that was a story I followed. I probably wrote 10 stories about R. Kelly when I was working at the AJC from that so all that happened. I probably wrote, you know, three or four stories just based off of that. And then a few months later, he had a concert actually in Atlanta that was heavily protested. So I went and covered that and talked to a woman who was organizing the protests and was a victim of sexual assault and kind of was the driving force of this hashtag mute R. Kelly campaign. And then shortly after that, um, so the houses, he actually had two houses in North Fulton County. Neither one of them he, he owned, but he rented. Probably about, I would say, six months later after those kind of initial stories came out, um, one of those houses got robbed and just ransacked. So that was a new story. And then probably six months after that, we get kind of lawsuits and things like that emailed to us and they're easy to search. And I got pretty good at like looking at different public records and stuff while I was there as a news reporter. So he uh, ended up getting evicted from one of those homes. Uh, you know, I wrote a story about that. Um, so yeah, just kind of covering all the uh, problems that R. Kelly had in Atlanta while I was there was definitely a big one. And the second one off of that, like I said before, a lot of rich celebrities and stuff, even athletes, had houses in North Fulton County, like I said before, really kind of, you know, well-to-do suburban area with lots of big houses. LaShawn McCoy had a house there. This was probably the summer of 2018, I think. And um, there was basically a thing where he was out of town training. Someone broke into his house and beat up his, at the time, ex-girlfriend who was still living there and robbed her and some other things. So there's that initial thing. But then it starts coming out that the girlfriend thinks that LaShawn McCoy set her up. And uh, it sort of kind of spirals from there. You know, we requested, you know, 911 records and phone calls and things like that. And they had had a lot of trouble before and he was trying to kick her out of the house. And so there's just a lot of things going on there. And I actually went to the house and knocked on the door and you could see that kind of cameras were removed from the house and there were cardboard boxes inside and stuff. Nobody was home. And, uh, you know, he denied all this. And then LaShawn McCoy didn't, but his lawyer and the girlfriend and her lawyer went to court. And I covered that trial. It was basically an eviction trial. He was trying to evict her from a home he owned, but she had belongings in the home. So it was a big mess. So <laughs> that was another, you know, story that I wrote, you know, several stories about and stuff. And, you know, nothing ever came down from the NFL. But uh, it was kind of a, you know, sort of a conspiracy theory that he had someone break into his house and beat her up to get her to leave. But it was never proven. So, uh, yeah, that was definitely a crazy one. I got interviewed by a radio station in Buffalo because he was still playing for the Bills at that time, you know, just because they're trying to keep up with the story, too, and figure out what's going on. So, yeah, those are two of the like more kind of surreal kind of crazy ones that I've covered during when I was covering the R. Kelly thing and writing several stories about him. I got, you know, a random number called me one day, a guy claiming to be R. Kelly's manager basically trying to get me to take down a story from the website that we had written about him. It was the one where 
I wrote that he was getting evicted and I had court documents and police records that said this. Um, so, you know, it was true, but he was trying to get me to take the story down. Um, and he wouldn't tell me who his name was or, you know, anything like that, but sort of came across as threatening, basically just like, you need to take that story down and this and this and that. And, uh, so that was kind of weird, um, and a little scary. And, uh, you know, it turns out like six months later, I ended up finding out who the guy was. I mean, he got arrested south of Georgia for uh, making threatening phone calls to one of the alleged girls that R. Kelly sort of had in his group. So, yeah, those were definitely probably the two top kind of weirdest, most memorable kind of stories that I followed and chased while I was at the AJC. So was he really his manager or was he just posing as his manager? I mean, he was definitely connected to him in some way. Um, I don't know if manager is the right word. Um, I mean, covering all those stories, chasing down, you know, lawyers for R. Kelly and stuff, it would seem like every time I went to go write a story about him and had to make an inquiry to an attorney, it was like, well, I don't represent Mr. Kelly anymore. This person does. And then the next time it was somebody else. And the next time it's somebody else and it's another manager. So a lot of just changing hands and things there. So yeah, running that stuff down was, uh, yeah, definitely memorable for sure. Is it easier to get the records in Georgia as it is opposed to Maryland or even in a case, North Carolina? Oh, yeah. Uh, North Carolina, I haven't done much, you know, public record searching just because um, that just hasn't really been my job here so far. But it's definitely easier in Georgia than it was in Maryland. I mean, Maryland, for the most part, you just had kind of case search. And, you know, other than that, it was kind of, you know, going through a bunch of hoops to get stuff in Georgia. Most counties and stuff like that, they have all their police and arrest records online that are pretty, you know, easily searchable and stuff. Like I said, we got kind of like a roll of, you know, lawsuits and stuff that were filed each day sent to us. Um, So yeah, it was definitely easier to look stuff up in Georgia, I think, than it was in Maryland. You know, and when you get kind of deeper into stuff in terms of, you know, using FOIA to request things, they have sort of the same hoops you'd have to jump through with any state. But I think in terms of just like that initial access and like finding out, all right, who was arrested last night? I don't have to go to the police station like I did in Salisbury, you know, to get the arrest records from the night before. I can just hop online and pull it up there. Talking about your move to North Carolina, what was the culture shock like if there was much of a difference? I know it's still southern state, still southern area, but to you, was there a huge difference? Yeah, I I mean, both my fiance and I definitely enjoy North Carolina a lot more. We just uh, we lived in Atlanta for about two years and I think just kind of got sick of the traffic and the heat and just everything was so busy and everybody is just kind of on top of each other and just hard to get from one place to another. And just really it's flat. You know, you don't have, you know, the ocean or the mountains. And I don't really have that here. But in North Carolina, I'm two hours away from the mountains and two hours away from the ocean. So that's cool. But yeah, I mean, here I live basically right in between Chapel Hill and Durham. And I don't ever have to worry about traffic. Cost of living is is cheaper here. And my apartment is bigger and nicer than the one I had in Atlanta and cheaper. So kind of hit the home run there. Um, so, yeah, we definitely like it in kind of every way. And, you you know, North Carolina, you still kind of get that, you know, the good, good Southern food and, uh, you know, kind of Southern comfort. You know, everybody's nice here and stuff. So, yeah, I think going from the biggest shock was definitely going from the eastern shore where I had lived since I was six years old, went to high school, went to college, got my first job there to Atlanta, you know, where it's big city, super busy 
all the time. Traffic is crazy. You know, so that was the biggest shock, you know, going from there to here. This is sort of kind of a happy medium where, like, if I want city stuff, Raleigh is 20 minutes away. A lot of cool stuff going on there. You know, Chapel Hill is a really kind of vibrant kind of downtown area, and so does Durham. Um, so definitely a lot to do, but I don't have to deal with that feeling of like you're being rushed and everybody's just kind of on top of you. And, you know, like I said, the crazy traffic, Atlanta is the worst traffic I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, so I liked Atlanta. There's definitely some different parts, but I probably wouldn't live there again. <laughs> just, you know, the traffic just too much for me. Yeah. I can only imagine what Atlanta is like. That was one of our places we're trying to go visit stadiums whenever baseball resumes it's a great city to visit you know go there for a few days and yeah you catch a game you know um the braves play out in cobb county now but it's a cool stadium um you know you got mercedes-benz stadium there the dome that's a really cool stadium to see a soccer or a football game um and there's tons of good food there the problem is is just getting around and then you know just like i said everything's just so busy and so congested when you moved to North Carolina, what did you do, I guess, for occupational stuff? I, I know you leaving a full-time job at the AJC to move to North Carolina. What were you initially doing just to sort of keep yourself in a working mode? Yeah, so um, when I worked, yeah, when I lived in Atlanta, I was working at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And um, when we were in Atlanta, basically, I think that August, um, uh, so Cox Media owned the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and then they owned a couple of different websites that worked in the same building. And my fiance worked for a website called Southern Kitchen, which was sort of basically Southern culture and dining and that sort of thing. And she wrote and did newsletters and everything else. Well, earlier that summer, Cox decided to sell that website to Gatehouse, which is another big newspaper company for those that don't know. So Cox sells Southern Kitchen to Gatehouse. Gatehouse says, yeah, everything's going to be good. All you guys are going to be full-time benefits all that good stuff. And then two months later, Gatehouse lays everybody off. <laughs> so she didn't have a job. And uh, so I was like, you know, look everywhere. You know, we didn't really have ties to Atlanta. You know, there was really nothing keeping us there besides, you know, I had a job. But I had felt at that point that I had kind of built up enough connections and, you know, experience that wherever we went, I could at least freelance and, you know, get by doing that. So she found a job here in Chapel Hill at a magazine group and took that job. And so I left the AJC and came up here and just started freelancing right away. The first thing I started doing was, um, you know, still writing for Pro Soccer USA, which the Orlando Sentinel owns. And initially when I was in Atlanta, I was covering Atlanta United, the MLS team. And I stayed on doing that through the end of the season. So basically in November and December, I was still running back to Atlanta because they ended up making the MLS Cup and winning it. So I went back there to cover that, about a six hour drive. Um, and then after that, I sort of transitioned into a role with them where I was covering the North Carolina Courage, which is the NWSL team here covered the USL, which is sort of the second division men's league in America. And I did some editing for them. So I sort of transitioned into that. So that was the the first kind of regular gig I was doing. And then I was still doing some stuff for SB Nation on the side. And then um, I started doing some work for this website called Pittsburgh Sports Now. I had done a little bit of work for them when I was in Atlanta. And then when I moved up here, I uh, hit up, you know, the guy that I was in contact with. His name is Alan Saunders. Great guy. Great writer. And he's one of the guys who runs that website. And so they cover basically all things, you know, University of Pittsburgh. And they have a couple other websites to cover the Steelers and Penguins and stuff. And I was like, hey, you know, since Pitt's in the ACC, you know, 
you guys ever need someone in to cover, you know, whenever a pit team is down here playing in the Carolinas, you know, because I got Chapel Hill, Duke, NC State in my backyard. Wake Forest is an hour and a half away. Virginia Tech is two and a half hours away. They do ACC stuff in Charlotte a lot. That's two hours. So I started doing stuff for them pretty regularly. It was you know cheaper for them to just pay me as a freelancer instead of sending their guy down here and paying to put him up in a hotel and all that good stuff. So yeah, I started doing that pretty regularly. And then shortly after that, the woman that hired me actually at the AJC, Melissa Hall, she went to go work for NCAA.com and Turner Sports. And right around the time of the 2019 NCAA tournament, about a month before, she emailed me about, you know, they needed some help and if I could come on as a contractor. So started doing pretty regular work for them, you know, went down to Atlanta and did some training and was with them for Selection Sunday. And then they sent me to cover the Women's Final Four in Tampa. So yeah, I had a lot of, you know, work. Like I said before, I have a planner, you know, kind of juggling a lot of different things. Um, and then kind of was able to, you know, do a little bit of stuff here on the side, kind of one-offs. I covered, um, you know, a Georgia Southern App State game for the Savannah Morning News. Um, Tennessee's baseball team was here in Chapel Hill for the NCAA tournament last summer. So I covered that for the Knoxville News Sentinel. Um, I did a story on an NC State women's basketball player for Slam. Um, so, yeah, just kind of doing, you know, a little bit of one-offs here and there, but um, yeah, for the most part, I had about, you know, four or five kind of steady gigs that I could juggle that sort of made it form fitted into a full time job, even though tax season was a big headache with all the 1099s. But it worked out. How do you try to balance that out, especially like you said, four or five gigs? Yeah. Like I said, before I started kind of diving into this freelance thing full time, I didn't really have a calendar or a planner at all. But that has really helped me just kind of stay straight because the one thing I've done it once or twice and it can definitely make for a headache. You know, if you kind of double book yourself, if you, you know, well, I'm going to cover, you know, three things in one day and drive from here to there to here. Or, you know, I'm going to try and kind of do this thing remotely while I'm also covering this game. Um, So that can just be a big headache. So it's really just organization and making sure that your schedule is straight. So using my planner for that. And then just making sure that you get paid on time. So whether that's sort of, you know, making a spreadsheet or a Google Doc, you know, keeping track of your invoices and stuff. So yeah, it's just a lot of organization and planning to sort of keep yourself straight and make sure that you're also, you know, not overworking yourself, which I did sometimes. <laughs> it's up to you to answer this, but normally how much do gigs run, especially a freelancing or per story? Uh, I mean, it always varies by the outlet. Um, You know, with NCAA.com, I got paid hourly because I was also doing some kind of behind the scenes site stuff. And then, you know, some other places really depends, you know, on it. Like if it's, you know, just sort of a short news item or a gamer or if it's a feature story, Um, a lot of the stuff that I did range probably between, I would say, 35 to you know, 90 bucks a story or something like that. And sometimes it'd be more, sometimes rarely less, I would say. But, you know, sometimes if you, you know, do a big feature or something, it can be more. I got a decent payday from SBNation.com for, uh, you know, a feature I did for them one time. But yeah, kind of the regular sort of gigs, you know, yeah, it's, you know, 50 bucks here, 75 bucks here for a story. I mean, it kind of all adds up to where, you know, you can kind of stay organized and stay on top of it. It can add up pretty good. With so many things to write, how do you avoid the dreaded writer's block? I know that's got to be something that you may have experienced before. And I can only think, 
just even trying to put together uh, like show notes can be a pain for this podcast and the occasional blog post. Those can be a bit of a task because then all of a sudden either creative juices aren't flowing or you're not sure how you start. Because I, I used to have a big issue of writing leads. Leads were the biggest thing that led to problems because then I would spend so much time on that and it would take forever to do the rest of the story when I would just normally write from the bottom up and then, okay, try to figure out something else for the lead. Yeah. So for me, I don't run into it a whole lot of time with the writer's block thing. You know, when I'm writing, if I'm covering a game and like I have to file like a game story at the buzzer, it's sort of just kind of that adrenaline of, you know, you got to get this done that sort of pushes you to, you know, do it. But when you're writing, and I know sometimes like when I'm just writing sort of a, a news item or a feature or a notebook or something, if I'm sort of just kind of dragging that day or the brain's not working, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll, um, you know, I'll transcribe all the interviews that I've done first. And sort of as I'm transcribing and kind of writing things out, that'll sort of help kind of spark something. I'll, you know, see a line in a quote or, you know, whatever. And I'll just, you know, I kind of point to it. Okay. That's my lead. Okay. That can go here. And then sort of just kind of build the story around that. Sometimes that sort of helps. So yeah, whenever I run into that, I just sort of turn to the, uh, the transcribing first with the quotes and then kind of figure it out from there. That at least gets my fingers kind of typing and then hopefully the brain kind of comes along afterwards. If I can't get anything out after that, then sometimes it's just time to kind of step away from the computer for 15 minutes and go do something else. You know, just take kind of a mental break away from the screen and come back kind of fresh and look at it again for the first time and see if anything else kind of sticks out or where I can figure out a starting point. And I think that maybe anybody who are former writers who are listening, there's no one set way to write a story because I know there's so many different aspects. I know that I would do the middle of the story because I know the action is as it keeps going. And then I would tailor make the end and tailor make the beginning, depending on whether, you know, this way I feel like it's, it prevents you from having to blow up your story completely because I feel like that way you have the guts that all happened. You just have to add, if something changes drastically, you put that up, maybe you put that up top and then say, this is how we got to this situation. Yeah. I would say when I'm writing, like I said, a kind of a game story, I'm probably sort of keeping kind of a log in my head of kind of what the important parts of the game were. And that's sort of going in the middle is kind of the meat, kind of the play by play, you know, the important parts of, of the game story. Um, and then kind of, you know, as the game is sort of getting into, you know, the final moments or whatever, you have a pretty good idea of who's going to win or who's going to lose in a perfect situation. So then you can kind of top off your lead with, okay, well, this team won or lost. And then you can kind of change a couple of things to reflect, you know, the impact of the win or the loss um, of whichever team you're covering or whatever it is. Um, when I'm working on the kind of a longer feature, um, I still usually start at the top, but like I said before, kind of when I'm transcribing quotes, sometimes things will kind of stick out to me and I'll just sort of pull that quote aside and kind of, you know, sort of build like an antidote or a paragraph kind of around it. And I'll just say, okay, that's going to go in the middle somewhere and I'll set that aside. But for the most part, I still try to start from the top down. That's just, I don't know, the way I've, I guess I've always done it. But yeah, I know some people use outlines and, different things like that. And some people start at the middle and then sort of go down or go up or whatever. Um, but yeah, whatever works, whatever works for you, you know, I would say to any kind of new or young writers out there, you know, whatever works best for you, go with that. You know, if an outline works best, 
whatever. I've never tried an outline. No one's really presented me one that would make sense for me. But if someone, you know, showed me, Hey, I think this would work for you. Maybe I'd give it a shot and we'll, you know, go from there. But yeah, for me, it's usually just sort of getting all my notes and important things kind of in order and looking at those and then figuring out what's going to be on the other page. A lot of times I'll have on my computer screen, I'll usually have like two Word documents open kind of side by side and one will kind of be for the story and the other one's kind of for the notes. So I'm kind of dragging stuff over and typing and so kind of weird, but that's, that's how I do it. I always see it like people would put their notes all the way at the bottom and then yeah. the quotes and then just start copying and pasting them in and then sort of wrapping the quote around it. And I always feel that anecdotal leads work extremely well if I'm doing like an obit story. You wouldn't mm-hmm. believe how many obit stories I've done for sports where I always start out with the anecdotal lead because, you know, get a good quote either – I remember the one I've done on Charlie Berry. I did one on former Chris Field coach Phil Rayfield. And I think a lot of those stories, they really suit themselves to an anecdotal nature, especially when you're just collecting, okay, best memories from people of the person who passed away. And I always think anecdotal leads are perfect for that. Or And enterprise stories. Enterprise stories, again, I haven't written an enterprise story in years. I mean, the last enterprise-ish type story I did was one I did a feature on the blog about a friend of mine who was doing outdoor exercise activities in the city park and that was probably the last time I've really done something like that more of a story lead instead of anything else being a you know regular blog post since the shutdown of sports how have you sort of been able to keep the creative juices flowing I, I know that you were thinking about options of creating a blog how did that go yeah, so I ended up starting a newsletter actually through uh, Substack, which is a um, newsletter service online, and you can set up you know free or paid options. Mine's free right now, but I sort of left the subscription option open. You know, if anybody wants to throw me five bucks a month, that's fine. I won't stop you. <laughs> but yeah, I sort of yeah I started that newsletters because I wanted just sort of some structure to my week and. Um, a way to kind of keep my fingers working and keep the yeah creative kind of journalistic juices flowing. So for the most part there, I've been doing kind of reported stuff on women's college basketball, um, but I've written kind of spun off and done some other things there as well. Wrote a little bit about, you know, the coronavirus, wrote a little bit about the NFL draft, wrote a little bit about movies. So it's sort of just kind of a space where I can do whatever, but also still do kind of some reporting and things. So yeah, when it comes to the women's college basketball stuff, I've done some original reporting on that just, you know, through Zoom calls or phone calls or whatever, just to sort of keep stuff flowing. Did some things about the WNBA draft. And so, yeah, it's been a good way just to sort of get myself, I guess, a sense of normalcy, you know, to where I'm still writing and still doing some things every now and then. I wonder how much Zoom interviews will step will definitely be an adequate means of communicating with people through interviews once the COVID-19 pandemic is over around here. Yeah, I wonder that as well, because I do, you know, before all this, I had, you know, been on several conference calls just through, you know, a phone call before, whether it was, you know, like a new coach gets hired or. It can be, you know, after a game or after a draft or, you know, whatever, some kind of pre-draft thing where there's dozens of people on this phone call. It can be kind of hard sometimes to sort of, you know, get everybody's questions in and that sort of thing. Um, Whereas, you know, when you have the Zoom thing, it's just sort of, I think, a better format. If you're going to do a conference call, I almost sort of prefer the Zoom sort of route of it instead because there's an easier way to sort of get your questions in and you can see people's 
um, I guess, facial expressions when they're, um, you know, answering questions and that can sort of, you know, lead you to some different things. Whereas on a phone call, you can't always pick up those stuff sometimes. Um, you can just kind of get the tone of voice. But yeah, I think I prefer if I'm going to do a phone interview and it's just one on one, that's fine. But I think if I'm hopping on like a conference call where it's, you know, me and four other 10 other, 20 other reporters and someone else, I think I'd rather do the Zoom thing so you can kind of see everybody and what everybody's asking. And like I said before, kind of spatial expressions and it's easier to register your questions and that sort of thing. Do you think when it comes to sports resuming once the COVID-19 panic is over that it'll take a, a, a bit of time readjusting to that or you think it'll be hitting the ground running? I think it's going to be slow probably, you know, for every sport. I really don't know how things are going to resume and what's going to come back first. It seems like NASCAR is the thing that's going to come back first. They've already scheduled, announced and scheduled some races for this month, actually. They're going to be all in the Carolinas, it sounds like, or close to the Carolinas anyway. Charlotte, Darlington, Bristol, and Martinsville, I think. So those are going to be no fans pit crews, essential personnel, drivers only. So it seems like that's going to be the first thing comes back. I would assume that maybe golf is the second thing just because that's the sport that takes the least amount of people to sort of do. Um, And then, uh, uh, you know, as far as soccer goes, I know the NWSL is planning on calling players back into training later this month. I think we're getting to a point where, you know, maybe pretty soon kind of some of these – Sports that don't take as much kind of behind the scenes work to put on, you know, kind of big productions like the NBA or NFL. I think the sports kind of one tier below that, you know, that, like I said, don't take as much production and things to put on. Those are the things that can kind of maybe come back first, just because, you know, I'm thinking about the NWSL. You just need players, coaches, you know, the people who kind of run behind the scenes stuff in the stadium, people who work the camera. So you're talking, you know, for one game. I don't know, maybe you're talking 60 people or something like that. So I don't know. It's going to be interesting. I, I think it's a lot of it's going to be up to the states um, because it seems like, you know, different states and different governors kind of have their own set of rules. I know the NBA is trying to come back. It seems like they're going to try some sort of bubble thing, maybe in Disney World or Las Vegas, where you can kind of be, you know, somewhere. They were talking about Disney World because basically it's sort of this sprawling kind of campus, but it's sort of closed off from the rest of Florida. Um, and you have, you know, gyms there, you have hotels there, you know, so you can kind of be quarantined off from the rest of the world and kind of locked into this space. The question is going to be, you know, are the players willing to be apart from their families, you know, for that long just to play basketball? So we'll see. Um, I don't know. I think the one, the sport that I'm most worried about us just missing completely would be college football. Um, because when you talk about college football, I mean, it's college, so you have to worry about all these college campuses opening up, you know, on time, or all these college campuses going to be open in August. I don't know, so we'll see. I think the NFL is probably definitely going to happen, just because that's the sport where it's the most people with the most power who have the most to lose. You know, the owners don't want to lose money, the players don't want to lose money, and the TV companies don't want to lose money. So I think. You know, those three kind of combined, they're probably going to do everything they can to play. So we'll see. I don't know. It's going to be weird. I'm just sort of keeping my eye on it. I'm optimistic, but also trying to be real at the same time and kind of preparing for the worst. So, yeah, we'll see what happens.
but I miss sports. <laughs> and I know in Europe, they used to do the Opti uh, Stadium soccer games. The only thing we could really use as a comparison over here in America was the game at Camden Yards between the Orioles and White Sox. But yep. the issue is not because there's rioting and there's there's un- civil unrest. The fact that people can't even be close to each other in proximity is going to make it even tougher. I mean, one of the things I had heard they were going to do is either they were going to play in Arizona or play in Florida and have everybody sort of scattered out in the stands, players and everything like that, have an umpire, but still have the the automatic strikes, the, the computer calling the strikes and just have them there for safe, you know, calling safe and out plays. But I don't know how that would work I mean, I already know that basically if you're a baseball fan or a sports fan in general and you've paid for season tickets, you, hopefully your team and the league would be willing to refund you. I mean, I already as an Orioles season ticket holder, I've already got emails like, oh, they're going to refund us tickets back for April, May, and June already and right. because they're not even going to take that risk. And I mean... And not even just at 100%, 125% pretty much. They're, they're making sure you could basically, as a result of this disastrous season, you could end up paying for two seasons worth of tickets through the money that are going to refund you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're already talking about, I guess, pushing the NBA season next season back to not starting until December. So, I mean, this could sort of kind of reshape, you know, how the sports world kind of looks and works. I think the one thing about baseball and football, you know, coming back before, I think you'll see the sports kind of with smaller rosters come back before baseball and football, because baseball and football, the rosters are so big football. You're talking about a 53 man active roster and 20 coaches or something like that. That's just one team basketball, you know, it's a 15 man roster and five coaches. So you're talking about 20 people versus 70, you know, on the 70 football side, you know, one person tests positive and, that could wipe out that whole team because you don't want to risk that team playing against another and then affecting another team. And so, yeah, it's just a mess. I'm, honestly, part of me thinks that we really won't have kind of real sports, you know, unless the players are willing to be quarantined off and willing to sacrifice time for their families, um, you know, and that's for them to decide. Um, I don't know that we'll have kind of real active, those big sports until we get testing, you know, that's quick, that's accessible, you know, something that takes, you know, five minutes to, to identify or whatever. And something that's available to everybody that we have it, have the tests in abundance. Um, So I I think until that happens, it's going to be tough. Do you expect at least things to start by January 2021? Or do you feel like we might have a chance to start things earlier, like September or October? I'm hopeful for, yeah, this fall, September, October. Um, I think that some leagues are going to kind of going to try and come back between now and then. Um, Like I said before, NASCAR is going to start this month. Um, I think there's something on the golf schedule planned for June. Um, you know, I know, like I said before, the NWSL is calling players back, you know, later this month, the, the NBA is going to try and work something out. It seems like, it seems like they're kind of heading towards that path. So yeah, I'm hopeful for things to sort of get back to a little bit of normalcy, hopefully by September, October, definitely by 2021. I hope, I don't, I don't really know you know, what's going to happen, but that's what I'm hoping for. 
I know this is probably going to be the new question to start asking people because in previous podcasts, I would ask people their celebrity lookalike, who would they have star in a show? But now the question is, what is the newest show that you've started binging as a result of this whole uh, sit in, I guess, uh, stay in, I guess, sort of type thing? Oh, man, I've watched so much TV <laughs> over since the quarantine started. Um, so because we got so couple months back when when the mandalorian came out um on disney plus i had to get disney plus and i already had espn plus and there was a package basically where you bundle disney plus and espn plus and free or basically the hulu where it has ads um you kind of bundle all that together for like 15 bucks so i was like oh well i might as well just do that if i already have espn plus and uh Disney Plus. So I've sort of been running through, you know, some things that are on Hulu. So I'm a big fan of Top Chef. So they have every season of Top Chef on there. And that's a good show you kind of just put on as background noise. Um, So my fiance and I have ran through all of Top Chef. We watched uh, all of the first three seasons of Fargo, which is a show on FX. that's pretty good. Um, We just watched uh, season three of Ozark. That was pretty good. Um, watch Tiger King, obviously. And then um, the thing that I have to look forward to every week is The Last Dance, the uh, Michael Jordan doc on ESPN. That's sort of my appointment viewing um, during quarantine. So every Sunday night, we know that for two hours, I get Michael Jordan in The Last Dance. Mine is normally every Monday morning, I'll watch the two episodes of The Last Dance. Really? Yeah. For me, um, we've been watching our normal array of shows. I would say that 70s show is starting to pick up in rotation. I never watched it a lot when it was originally on, but a couple of years ago during my unemployment, I remember watching it a little bit, and then I'm like, man, this show is actually funny. And then watching it again on streaming, it, it has gotten hilarious. But for me, other shows I've been watching, really, like I said, nothing new, but I've been watching a lot of Murder, She Wrote. That's been... Uh, pretty much my go-to in the mornings murder she wrote and then using the pluto tv app i watch buzzer so really the show i've been really picking up the most on is like this show sale of the century and it's just basically throughout the show you end up buying items because you, everybody starts off with 25 dollars. you go to the show you keep answering questions every time you get it right you get five bucks every time you're wrong it's it's minus you, you lose five but throughout the show the person who's in the lead, they keep tempting them with like different items and things. Like sometimes it's like, I'm seeing it's the eighty, so it's like you know uh, a, a stereo system, and then sometimes the host would throw like three hundred bucks in cash, and then it all depends. Oh, do you want to spend like this much, six dollars or whatever? And depending on how much of a lead, the, the, it all depends on what the person wants to spend or whether or not they want to actually spend the money on. And, it, and it's been something that, again, that show came on when I it was probably started when i was born and, and went off six years old so watching it it's like man that's actually pretty interesting and that's again one of the few shows that really i've been sort of been watching along with murder she wrote which is you know the weirdest contrast but right <laughs> yeah the other one um i know billions comes back on sunday so i'll be watching that um and then i found the show on netflix called meat eater which is like a hunting show, which I'm not really into, but I was kind of scrolling through it. And they have two episodes about the Eastern Shore. It's about sick of deer. I mean, they kind of do some crabbing too. So I tuned into that. It's not bad. So it's kind of, yeah, for the most part, just kind of clicking around, seeing what kind of catches my eye. Yeah. And you think in this environment where, you know, from Amazon, from Prime Video to Hulu to Netflix 
to oh, yeah. his other channels and everything and Pluto TV. And it's like sometimes no one can complain that there's nothing on TV. I mean, yeah, there's all options. The quality of shows, that's a different story, but there is always something on TV for people to watch, especially right now when you have to do something to not lose your mind. Honestly, I'll admit, I video games would probably be the next go-to, but I haven't even touched a video game uh, in a while. Me and my wife would just play some like Lego Harry Potter, but other than that, <laughs> really haven't done that much video game playing either. And uh, that last dance thing has sort of got me into this whole... Um, wanting to go back into NBA 2K17. I had like downloaded all these rosters and draft classes from like 1991 all the way up to 2001. So right. that would make me want to rerun the Bulls dynasty and show that I could probably do a better job than Jerry Krause. But <laughs> I mean, it's funny about that last dance. You look at it, you know, everybody's going to blame Jerry Krause. And the problem is he's not here to defend himself anymore. So it's going to be easy scapegoat for for him yeah one of the things with yeah i mean kraus definitely you know he's the reason why that team blew up but at the same time you have to give him credit because he's the one who found scotty pippen out of central arkansas and he's the one you know who gave the green light to sign dennis rodman and he's the one who found tony kukoc um you know so he built that team um but at the same time, yes, he is responsible for blowing it up. I mean, I can't just imagine sort of in today's kind of media landscape, you know, media, Twitter, Facebook, everything kind of 24-7, you know, news cycle, everything's a big deal all the time. Everything's a big story. You know, if a coach or, I mean, if an NBA GM came out and said, you know, this is so-and-so coach's last season, that would be a big story in itself, even if it was, you know, Coach Joe Schmo. You know, he came out and said that, and you know, before the season started, this is well, whoever's last season, whatever happens, it you know, it doesn't matter, it's done. But to say that about Phil Jackson, you know, who had won five titles, including you know the previous two back to back, I just, yeah, I mean that would, that would just be a, it just wouldn't happen. I mean, that GM would probably get fired, um, even though Reinsdorf was super hands off. I just can't imagine the blowback from that would be um, ridiculous. Um, so I just I can't imagine sort of that that happening in today's kind of media landscape. But the other thing is, I mean, it seemed like Phil Jackson was also kind of done. So and Dennis Rodman was kind of at the end of the rope. You know, the, the next year he went to Dallas and I think lasted 20 games, maybe. Um, so that was sort of the end of his career. And I think Scotty was just done. I mean, he, he demanded to trade. Um, and the next season he goes to Houston and then goes to Portland and has a couple of solid seasons. So. You know, I think it, either way, even if Jerry hadn't come out and said, this is it, um, I think it kind of would have ended anyways. And I look at it and had those Bulls teams after blowing it up turned out the way Danny Ainge got the Celtics going after trading Garnett, Pierce, and all of them. He would right. be fine. He drafted all those guys that had the potential, never could get it together. He picked the wrong coach. But I also think that Reinsdorf easily could have found some other GM to, if you weren't going to get rid of Phil and all this other stuff, you could have found some other GM who would have worked with Phil to get everybody back. And my other issue is I, I feel like, and now we watch it in the age of load management and seeing Kawhi taking off a bunch of games, if there was more depth on that bench – I think that would have really helped, you know, rest Jordan too. I think that's an issue that 
You look, he played a lot of minutes. He, he mm-hmm. didn't get worn down. The only, really, the real injuries he had was early on when he broke his foot and the knee surgeries that he had in Washington, which was really, I don't know, everybody likes to talk about, oh, the Jordan that came back in Washington, he wasn't doing it to win. He wasn't doing it to win. He was trying to, to at least make it more attractive. So when he came back into that VP of basketball operations job that they'll look upon right. him, and then old man Poland just like, no, nope, I'm done with you. And and then we got the years of Grunfeld. So the fact that he was able to clear off all those dead contracts, the Jawan Howard and all that other stuff, after Wes Unsell blew that team up, and I know, and every time I watched, the that that's even the opening thing with Weber in the Wizards uniform dunking on the Bulls and then beating beating the Bulls, I always think of how the the Wizards had the potential to at least been a very decent team in the East if it wasn't blown up. But, you know, and I also looked at Chicago could have had the great transition, still could have had Jordan, could have gotten some picks or something. Even if you decided to trade Pippen, there's probably plenty of other guys out there you could have gotten that would have been a number two and who really would have taken the, uh, you know, taken the slack off of Jordan so he still could have played well. There's plenty of guys out there. I mean, there were plenty of guys out there, and I feel like, you know, somebody wanted, uh, Krauss wanted to prove he could do it again. And he had a lot of pieces. He had a lot of pieces that just didn't work out. Elton, I think he was yeah. Elton, Brand, Elton Brand, Jay Williams, uh, Artest. He picked a, a ton of those guys. It just did not work. I think Tim Floyd was probably a prime example. Uh, yeah, I think Tim Floyd is a, a bad choice as head coach. And then he took a lot of flyers on guys coming straight out of high school. Like I think he drafted Eddie Curry. And I think he drafted Tyson Chandler. But Chandler didn't really become what he became until, you know, 10 years later. But, yeah, there was a couple other flyers that he kind of took. And, yeah, they just didn't draft right. I mean, the players were there and they had top picks. They just didn't pick the right guy. And now ever since – and like I said, even then, it really took Paxson and B.J. Armstrong to a lesser extent to rebuild that team. Um, It took former Bulls to actually rebuild that Bulls team to be a good one for a brief fleeting moment, and then they couldn't get over the hump. I think the Bulls getting back to where they were is going to take a very, very long time. Even the the D-Rose times, it's going to take a a bit to get back there, especially in the Eastern Conference. You still have the Sixers who are good. You still have the the Raptors, of course, the Celtics, which I honestly thought they would have taken the next step after Kyrie was gone, but... I, I don't know. I mean, Kyrie was probably the worst case. If you could have got maybe, well, I don't know if adding a LeBron to to the Celtics would have mattered because he would have tried to get rid of all those guys anyway to, to build a team. And I know the biggest thing is everybody's going to talk about the whole LeBron and Jordan thing. And it starts making you wonder more. So what about, we were talking about the discussion. I know I talked about the discussion with Dana Godwin, and we were talk, talking about, you know, Kobe factors in this debate as well. Wilt factors in this debate as well. Kareem, Bill Russell has more rings than everybody right. in the debate, and it's really uh, tough to just narrow it down to Jordan. Jordan was the right player at the right time. Yeah, yeah, if you're talking about I, – I think Jordan's the greatest, you know, if you're ranking your top 10 NBA players or whatever. Um, I think Jordan's won – um, I would probably put Kareem too, just because Kareem did it. I mean, for, through two decades, there was nobody who would guard Kareem. Um, he won, you know, a handful of titles. Um, he's the best scorer of all time. We've never really seen anybody like him since. I would probably consider putting Magic Johnson three. I mean, Ma- Magic Johnson played in, 
I think nine or 10 NBA finals or something like that. Um, it seemed like every other year in the eighties, you know, the Lakers were in the NBA finals and Magic Johnson probably, you know, if you're talking about kind of scoring charts and longevity and whatever, you know, if he didn't have to retire because of uh, HIV, you know, that's a guy who could have played, you know, he came back, I think briefly for a couple of games in 96, but probably had another good, you know, three or four years left when he retired. Um, so yeah, I, I would probably put Magic Johnson three. Um, and then you can start talking about LeBron, Kobe, um, Bill Russell, um, Larry Bird, Tim Duncan, Shaq. Um, I think those guys kind of fall in line afterwards. Yeah, so. I think like Wilt, just the fact that, that he scored 100 points in a game was that dominant, had an MVP season. Like right. we'll never see. Harden will never average that many points a game in a season. And even in a guard-friendly league, and you think about this, I know everybody's going to say, well, guys, we're only like six foot five or so or blah, 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 blah. But the problem is, hey, you play against the competition. Yeah, I mean, I remember right. watching footage on YouTube of how people used to shoot in the NBA. There were no set shots. They would do they would do they would do like the equivalent of sky hooks from like 20 feet out. And we all know it could have been scary if you had a three-point line in the age of Will Chamberlain because he probably would have refined his game where if he could shoot a three-pointer, who knows. Yeah, you can make the same argument, you know, about Jordan kind of playing today. I think, you know, the people who make the argument about you know, the, the Warriors kind of running all over the, the 98 Bulls, I, I think that's crazy. Um, I don't think uh, any Jordan team gets ran all over. I think if you drop the Bulls into this this era or whatever, I mean, they had the roster to do everything that's going on now when you talk about defensive switching and being able to guard multiple positions. I mean, Scottie Pippen and Dennis Rodman could guard anybody. Michael Jordan probably couldn't guard a center, but, you know, one through four. Um, especially when you talk about now where kind of the traditional center has kind of faded away. You know, Tony Kukoc could, you know, pass as any good wing that's in the NBA today. Ron Harper could guard, you know, one through three. And I think if you drop those guys into today, they probably all learn, you know, how to shoot threes. You know, the Steve Kerr of, you know, 1995, 96, 97, 98 probably gets more minutes and puts up more threes. I think Michael Jordan spends more time learning how to shoot a three. Scottie Pippen takes more threes. So, you know, I, I think it would be, you know, a fair match. It's hard to compare eras, but, you know, I think if you put those Bulls teams, you know, into today with the Warriors, I think it's it's probably a fair match. Um, he mentioned Kukoc. I think he would probably be a stretch five. He would have been the stretch five mm-hmm. because he yeah. had the height. He could shoot. European player, he wouldn't have been as big as Porzingis, but he would have been a stretch five and – and I think that would have been a weapon, especially with Phil Jackson. Phil Jackson would have found a way to get the most out of those guys. I just think depth-wise, on the other hand, they, they still didn't have depth. Randy Brown, eh, defensive player, but, you know, Shandon Anderson was a defensive player. And, you know, defensive player means lacks of offensive skill. And I, I feel like those guys, that, that really, when you look at it, the bench was very, very, very questionable after um, Kerr and Kukoc because... You know, you had a very aged Robert Parrish. You had Jason Caffey, Dickie Simpkins, Keith Booth. Yeah, I, for, I had forgotten that Keith Booth was uh, on that team until I looked up the roster and I was like, oh, Keith Booth, huh. That's the one thing that gets me, that depth. If you had added some guys like Dominique on the end, tail end of his career, that would have probably gotten you some minutes. You could have added a bunch of guys to that bench that would have, like I said, gave Michael more of a breather and would have, you know, prolonged his career. I mean, mm-hmm. 
I mean, there's plenty of guys you could have picked up. You could have picked up like a Chuck person or, or a guy like that who could who give you weapons off the bench. You could hit threes, you, you know, plus Kerr. You could find maybe like a Mark Price who could still could hit threes. And then, you know, you have all those guys who would have been just as dangerous. And it's funny when I think of Steve Kerr playing on the Cavs and like he was the guy who backed up Mark Price. A guy who was right. just as dangerous a three-point shooter as Steve Kerr, you know. And I went to yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, that '98 team. By the time you get past, yeah, those that kind of top seven, you know, the starters, and then Kerr and Kukoc. Um, yeah, not really a whole lot there. Um, that was, I mean, basically a seven-man rotation, sometimes eight. So yeah, thin thin bench for sure. Yeah, I forgot Wennington because I keep forgetting Luke Longley was the center. But yeah, the depth is what really gets me. I mean, but then again, those seven are probably better than some other teams' top seven, maybe save for like these recent Celtics teams uh, where they had a bunch of guys come off the bench who could, who could, you know, spot everybody. Yeah. I mean, even, I mean, a lot of those dynasty teams just kind of short on depth in general, like the Miami heat, the LeBron heat teams, when they got to kind of the end of the line, you know, the starters, you know, Chalmers, Wade, LeBron, Bosch. And I don't even remember who the starting center was on those teams. I guess it was Birdman. And then you had Haslam, Mike Miller, Shane Battier, and Ray Allen. But, I mean, all those guys are over 36 years old. Yeah, I mean, when you get to that point, it's kind of old guys kind of hanging on, you know. So you're worried about injuries and how many minutes can they play and that sort of thing. But it's kind of those, you know, the Warriors kind of had the same thing with kind of David West latching on and, uh, you know, Iguodala kind of at the end of his career. So when you're paying a bunch of, you know, stars to kind of create this super team, that's the thing that kind of suffers is like, you know, Hopefully nobody gets injured because if you have to turn to your bench, it's not going to be good. Yeah, like those Celtics, too. Their bench was probably better. They had Eddie Howells. They had P.J. Brown. Plus they had, I think, Tony Allen plus Avery Bradley before Ray Allen just didn't want to come back. That was a pretty scary bench there. Of course, you just have a bunch of no names. And I think, wasn't Scalabrini on that team? I don't know. but it always, yeah. You know. yeah, I always feel like the Garnett Celtics probably should have won one more title. 09, I think, was the year Garnett got hurt. And then, of course, in 10, they made the finals, but lost to the Lakers. But yeah, it always seemed like, yeah, they should have won one more. And that was a good team. Well, Mitch, I really do appreciate you coming back on the podcast and telling us what's been new in this past couple of years since we last had you on what's the best way people can reach out to you on social media or catch up with you yeah for sure so my newsletter i think if you just go to mitchellnortham.substack.com you can find that there i'm on there at primetime mitch uh facebook you know just search my name and you should be able to find me so yeah that's how you keep up with me and everything i'm doing and all that good stuff It was good to talk to Mitch again. One note that I'd like to add is that Mitch is writing a book in the near future on the history of Bayside Conference basketball, which is something I'll be looking forward to reading. Next time, my guest will be Matt Lang, a good friend of mine from my days back at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. We'll talk about his time as a high school basketball player, his love for his native Washington, D.C., being a camp counselor for a future NBA star, our time on the UMES academic team, and much more. New episodes are available each week on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else podcasts are heard. You can also go to the Sports Refuge website for a complete archive of episodes. Until next time, this is Earl Holland saying thanks for listening and have a good one. You've been listening to the Sports Refuge podcast. For more information about our show and our guests, go to our website at thesportsrefuge.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Sports Refuge, on Instagram at Sports Refuge Sports Blog, and on Facebook at The Sports Refuge Sports Blog. Thank you for listening.